On this week's Texas Tribune TribCast, we'll talk about the pre-session school finance scuttlebutt, a big Obamacare ruling out of Texas, and a state senator dealing with some lewd texts. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TribCast sponsors. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas, giving back to the Texas community with 38 Kaboom Playgrounds, the most recent at the Boys and Girls Club of Collin County. And the nine Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges, training Texans for high-demand careers in leading industries. Find out more at gulfcoastcc.org. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, December 19th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Breaking news reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. And political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. I'm hoping that none of you have ever sent any lewd texts because we're going to be talking about a lot of them <laughs> on this TribCast. Uh, as Everybody's always, mind races. <laughs> yeah, right. Certainly plausible uh, that we have not. So. Uh, as always, we'll take your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you can do it using the hashtag TribCast. Okay, so folks, let's start with the latest news out of the University of Texas yesterday involving Charles Schwartner, a state senator accused of sending lewd texts to a graduate student. Uh, what has UT now said in the result of their investigation? You know, they rolled out the executive summary of what sounds like, but we haven't seen, of a much longer report um, that basically looked into the particulars of the case. And it was clear just from that executive summary that the investigator, Johnny Sutton, who's a former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas, now a private lawyer in Austin, uh, who was hired by UT, it looked like he didn't get any, didn't get much cooperation out of Schwartner himself, and so couldn't close off some of the questions. So they they did detail how the message was sent, what software application was used to send it, that it might not have come, or that it probably did not come from Schwartner's, from the Schwartner cell phone that they looked at. It, it doesn't foreclose, came from a computer, came from an iPad, came from, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they basically said, we can't prove exactly that he did this or sent this, but we can't prove he can't. Right, I think their line was that they could not, um, they, they said he didn't violate school policy, or there was not enough information to prove that he right. violated school policy, right? And that it was plausible that the texts were sent by a third party, and Schwartner and his lawyers have maintained sort of throughout this whole process that he did not send these lewd texts, as, as was alleged. Right, and then they, they pop up this sort of secret person, it's very weird, uh, this third party who said to Johnny Sutton and UT through a lawyer, but without being identified that um, they were involved in sending this. So it's, it's convoluted. And it's basically full of, you know, it's basically they put out a thing uh, that I, I can't imagine. I, I think Schwartner probably wanted to close this all off and, you know, end this whole conversation. But there are so many question marks left by this investigation that, you know, we're less than three weeks from a session, and this is what everybody's talking about. And yeah, we're he, walking into the <laughs> highest level of scrutiny, the highest period of scrutiny for anybody in the Texas legislature. He he, very, he put out a statement that was very hopeful in its attempt to kind of put a bow on this and wrap it up. And he, you know, he declared, I think he said something like, this matter is now closed. He said the according university to, According to Charles Shortner. Right. The University um, of as, Texas has closed their investigation <laughs> because I did not, I did not send the offensive text messages in question. But his lawyers are also saying, quote, a third party sent the message. So, so, so what does that even mean? The investigation did not say he did not send the message. The investigation right. he said, said he did not. <laughs> the investigation said that the message was not sent from this particular cell phone. Mm. 
that being Charles Schwartner's cell phone. It did say we can't tell from what we have whether it was sent from an iPad or whatever. You know, they can't tell. And then they have this third party who is unnamed basically saying, you know, maybe I did it. So obviously we're not supposed to make assumptions as journalists, but what's the working theory here? I, you know, I got questions. You can do that. I got yeah. questions. You know, who sent the message? Why did they send the message? What was the purpose of the message? What was the content of the message? We saw some of that. Some of it's redacted. I kind of was relieved to see that some of it was redacted, frankly. <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> I don't want to see that. Um, but, you know, there are a bunch of questions here, and you look at it and you go, however... You know, just by the description that we have and just by the facts that we have in Johnny Sutton's two-page executive summary, uh, there, there are a lot of questions. You're not out of the polit political jungle on this. You're not necessarily out of the civil liability jungle. If anybody wants to, to go after Schwartner or if this woman wants to go after Schwartner in a civil matter, um, there are, are enough questions still out there that, you know, a lawyer could probably find some room to work here. Yeah, you know, some of the obvious questions, of course, are, you know, who's this third party? Why do they have, you know, access to, to this app or, or right. whatever? Also, you know, why didn't Schwartner cooperate with the UT investigation? I mean, there's just kind of the classic, you know, uh, axiom of, you know, if you have nothing to hide, why, right. not, why not come, come forward? forward? I think his lawyers yeah. said something to the effect of, or they claimed that, you know, he decided not to cooperate once he learned he would not be given the same level of confidentiality as the student, Allegedly, as the graduate the student? As the graduate student. But in any case, it just goes back to the same thing. You know, if you have nothing to hide, why not fully cooperate? Well, and, and if, if Shortner sending a message like this was or would have been a wrong thing, then why is it not the same wrong thing for this third party, whoever that is, exactly. to send it? And why aren't they taking and, that to ground? And if the third party is uh, a disgruntled employee, why don't you say it publicly? If the third party is your kid messing around, why don't you say that publicly? I mean, the options get narrower and narrower. Pretty crafty kid. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, the options are for what it you is. You know, I'm thinking of Ross Ramsey as a teenager, you know. Hey. dad and sexting scandal. Right. It's impossible not to tie this to something nefarious if, you know, you're going down the list of options and all of them seem like they would be less embarrassing than what you're not disclosing. Well, because of, because of his situation, because he's a public official, because he's a state senator, and you start looking at this and saying, okay, so what's the, what's the legal damage? here? What's the institutional damage here? Is there, you know, is this a one-off or, you know, I think the Senate's treatment of him is going to be, is going to be an indication of the other 30 senators' confidence that nothing like this is going on in the Senate or in the institution or because he, of his position as a state official. I mean, you know, there's a lot to unwrap here. And I think in the early days of the Senate, we're going to get a very, you know, close look at, um, you know, whether the senators and the lieutenant governor are going to have to walk around this guy with hot pads all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, Ross noted earlier, he's not really out of the political jungle. Um, I think we had in our story, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the latest in the lieutenant governor's office is just that the lieutenant governor is reviewing the, right. the findings or reviewing this whatever report or executive summary. Right. Um, didn't see anything from uh, the governor's office yesterday on this. I imagine lieutenant governor is probably kind of the authority or kind of the, the person who, who would be working behind the scenes to try to figure out, you right. know, what the political resolution to this could be, if anything. Uh, but if, if, you know, I'm the lieutenant governor or really any statewide leader, I'm trying to think about what are the other potential avenues that could open going forward in this? Could this drag on? Could it continue to be a distraction? Or a, or do do I believe Charles Schwartner's very optimistic statement when he says 
this is closed. There's nothing else that's going to happen in this in this story. Does this I, happen at exactly the wrong time to and and so distract everybody from school finance or whatever it is I want to get done? I want to talk about property taxes. I don't want to talk about this. Right. The Senate, if they think that there's an institutional problem here, um, you know that some of this for some reason was tied to his um, status as a senator or a public official, you know, they have the power to do their own investigation. And then we're talking about that for the 20 weeks of the legislative session. It's a hairball. I have to imagine they're just going to take the word of the university as, you know, there's not enough evidence here. We're just going to move forward. Do, I mean, do you think anyone in the Senate really wants to mess around with this? No, but I, I think that probably the question here is, can they drop it and not mess around with this? Or is this going to be the, you know, sort Who's going to beat the drum, right? Is this the leading case issue for any, you know, Me Too problems that pop up in the Texas legislature during right. the 20 weeks? Is this, you know, you know, during those first five or six weeks when there's not much going on over there, you know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's like one of the world's greatest centers of gossip. I mean, it's going to be a talker. Yeah. A uh, question from Donna on Facebook or uh, Twitter. Why does a senator need a hushed account anyway? I would uh, refer you to the office of State Senator Charles Schwartner for that, <laughs> that question. Uh, Rod, we were talking about the this office a of Ross Ramsey. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. Office the office of Ross Ramsey. Not, not because he's a hushed expert, but <laughs> right. because he understands this. What is hushed, and why would a senator need an account? It's a software app that basically, you know, cloaks, you know, the caller, or it gives you a it gives you a randomly generated cell phone number that you can use, and then doesn't trace back to your phone necessarily. Although I understand that if you use hushed on a phone, it puts a marker in that says it was used on that phone. So one of the things they found in the Shortner investigation was that even with hushed and even with a spoofed cell phone number, they know it wasn't his instrument, that it mm -hmm. wasn't his, you know, his phone. But anyway, um, it's a thing for basically um, depersonalizing and de-identifying communications. Um, you know, I don't know why a state official would want it or need it. I'm a little bit baffled that you would be paranoid enough to put hushed on your phone, but not paranoid enough not to give your hushed password to this third party that they won't name. Right. Is there, I mean, could hushed be used to like skirt open records laws by elected officials who are texting each other or? I, you know, if you, if you can't trace something, you can't trace it. I right. mean, you know, open records law, the Open Information Act says that uh, public, you know, public business conducted by public officials is public information no matter what the medium, but if you can't see it and you don't know the mediums out there, you know, I, there's a million ways to get around that. Right. All right. Well, we'll be, we'll be keeping our eyes on this in the start of the legislative session. Uh, Emma, last week we got major national news out of Texas involving the fate of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. What happened? So uh, Texas, most, most officials in Texas hate Obamacare. That's not been a secret for the past eight years. Texas sued uh, the latest time in February to kill Obamacare because Congress last December had gutted this sort of major provision of Obamacare, the individual mandate, which basically said, you have to buy health insurance or if you don't, you have to pay us money. So Congress sets that to zero. And then Texas says, well, since that's now at zero dollars, it's no longer constitutional because we can't see it as a tax which uh, is something Congress has the power to impose. You can't just willy-nilly tell people they have to do things, but Congress can tell you, you have to pay me this money as a tax. So that was a Texas argument. Um, and that was the argument that the federal judge went with on Friday. He struck down the entirety of the uh, Affordable Care Act. Which Not is just the individual mandate, the whole damn thing. 
the right. whole damn thing. Uh, you know, as we know, this is a sweeping federal law. It's been in place years and years. It touches basically every person in the country. You know, if you're on your parents' insurance, if you're on your employer's insurance, if you're on Medicare, if you're on Medicaid, um, this this is a ruling that could affect you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what are the immediate repercussions, if any? I know there was a deadline for, you know, enrollment coming right up. Yeah, the ruling came on the eve of the enrollment deadline for signing up through the federal exchange. Uh, for now, the federal government has said the law is in place. It's a little bit hairy as far as how this ruling can be appealed, but the um, sort of other side of the case, the California coalition always fighting the Texas coalition in court has has said, you know, we're taking this up to the next level. And it, it, a chorus of legal experts is saying this will not survive an appeal, or at least not all of it will survive an appeal. Not all of it will survive an appeal. Interesting. Right. They have this thing called severability, which is sort of, you know, if you're, if the cigarette lighter in your car goes out, it doesn't mean the whole car is useless, you know, right. so you declare part of a law um, unconstitutional or illegal, and you throw that out, but you keep the rest of the thing, and in this case, Reed Connor, the um, judge, said the whole thing stinks, throw away the car. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that the reaction to this, or the lack of reaction to it from Republicans, I think, in Texas and across the country, just shows how much the politics of Obamacare uh, has shifted. I mean, there was no, in my inbox on Friday mm-hmm. night, I know it was a late Friday night, but this applies to Saturday and Sunday too. Right, there late was Friday no... nights don't, never stand in their way. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, there was no political cheering from uh, the usual cast of, of Republican uh, officials in, in Texas and, and nationally too. Right. I mean, obviously the Trump administration said something, they had to say something. And the next, uh, on Monday, Greg Abbott, our governor, you know, and ended up putting out some, some kind of statement on this. Uh, but I just, you know, we just had a, a midterm election where this issue uh, was wielded uh, with uh, to devastating effect against congressional Republicans, including two here in Texas, John Culberson and Pete Sessions. And um, it just the politics of Obamacare, it seems, have shifted pretty dramatically. And you just don't see uh, Republicans as... Uh, charged up around this issue. Well, yeah, the Ted, you know, I mean, you've written yeah. this, the Ted Cruz who said, I'm going to get rid of every comma right. and every dot and stitch in this thing right. is you I know, saying, I want to keep I, the, I want to keep this piece and this piece and this right. piece. And he was, he was among those who didn't volunteer any kind of reaction on, on Friday. Night. It, was, it was really just busy right. on Friday. Yeah. <laughs> was this a big win for Ken Paxton, you know, a battle weary, you know, made it through a tougher than usual election? I mean, I think I saw a release from him for sure. I saw three releases from him uh, on <laughs> yeah. Friday. Yeah, th- this was a huge win for Ken Paxton, who's kind of been leading the charge of you know Texas fighting the feds. And right. and honestly, based on the legal experts I've I've talked to, including many on the conservative side of the spectrum, it was kind of a stunning win. A lot of people thought, you know, we we can see you, we agree with you as far as the individual mandate now at zero dollars. Hard to say a zero dollar tax is a meaningful tax. Okay, maybe we maybe we strike that part down. But kind of Ross's analogy to the car. I'm not sure what Ken Paxson would say about it, but uh, certainly a lot of legal experts, even those on the on the right, can't can't get that far. They say we we don't buy the severability analysis. If you have to kill this part of the law, tell me right. why you know Emma can't stay on her parents' health insurance until she's 26, just to use a you know a total hypothetical there. <laughs> <laughs> because the Texas Tribune offers such generous. They have the sweat on your, they have the sweat on your forehead. Right? Yeah. Um, last question on this, Emma. Um, tell me a little bit about the judge who ruled this way. This is somebody we've actually have been writing about for other reasons this week. What's his track record? Yeah, Reed O'Connor is a George W. Bush appointee who serves in the Northern District of Texas. Um, He has heard many Texas challenges to the federal government, more than his fair share, I think, by by any metric. Um, 
Texas has filed some 15 cases in the last four years that have ended up at at his level, basically, in a federal district court in Texas, and he's heard about half of them. Uh, Keep in mind that there are about two dozen people of his rank in Texas, and it it starts not to look like a coincidence. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Rural Funders Collaborative. Find research on rural Texas and learn about the work of the Texas Rural Funders Collaborative at edtx.org slash texasrural. And the Hotel San Jose, a unique place to sleep, a gathering space, and occasional hub of community activity. Visit sanjosehotel.com to find out more. Uh, Ross, I want to shift gears and talk about one of the hottest issues heading into the upcoming legislative session, uh, which begins in just two short weeks. Uh, And that's the battle over how Texas funds public education. What are you anticipating, given the uh, commission hearings that have been going on ahead of the session? You know, there are a bunch of different ideas about what constitutes school finance, and it sort of depends on who you talk to, what are your priorities here. Um, A lot of members would like to answer those town hall questions that both the Democrats and the Republicans get about, what are you going to do about my property taxes? They'd like to get some property tax relief, which turns out to be remarkably expensive. Um, You know, it costs billions of dollars to lower property taxes in any meaningful way. So there's that question. There's a question of does it mean uh, rebalancing a system that now has local taxpayers paying 55% to the state government's 35%, the other dime is federal government money. Um, So do you rebalance that? Again, that's a really expensive proposition. The idea being that if you increase the state's share of the cost, then the burden on local property taxpayers goes down. Right, sort of the waterbed theory, right? Right. And I'm going to lower this half and raise that half. Um, That cost, to balance that, costs about $5.7 billion a year. Mm -hmm. If you were to bring the state's share of school finance spending up to the level of um, local spending, that's about $12 billion a year. They just don't have money like that. And then there's a, there's a case to be made that a lot of the Democrats and, and many of the Republicans are making <clears throat> that this is an opportunity to spend more money on education and that really what you're talking about when you're talking about school finance is equitable education and dollars are just a way to measure that. It's not just a financial problem, that it's more of an education problem and you're trying to change how much weight, uh, how much do I spend on a normal average kid? How much do I spend on a kid who needs English as a second language? What about special needs kids? What about all all these special cases? And those are called weights and they haven't revised the weights in a long, long time. Well, we've seen some different messaging coming out. We had, first off, a a plan that Governor Abbott dropped his own. What was the big takeaway from that plan? It's an interesting plan. He would um, put some pressure on local property taxes to go down, and, you know, as they go down, it would sort of ratchet them down, and the state would replace the money as it, you know, as it came up. So as these property taxes brought in less money, the state would spend more money, but he never got to where the state was going to get the money he was talking about. Right, and how much money was he talking about? Well, he was talking about a lot. I mean, when you're talking about school finance, you're talking about a huge system, and even a very small change is very, very expensive. And um, to get a meaningful change, by meaningful I mean one that would, you know, basically make property taxpayers think this was fair, to get a meaningful change is extremely expensive. and Billions and billions of dollars. Billions and billions of dollars per year, right. not just per two-year budget. And, you know, at the same time that Governor Abbott's plan was floating, it's still floating, it's out there. And he didn't, he didn't uh, answer this in an unsatisfactory way. He just didn't answer it. It's like he's put out a really good 32 pages of a 40-page report. Right. Um, the other, you know, we're waiting to see what the mechanism is. At the same time, Paul Betancourt and the people that were working on the subcommittee 
to the special committee on school finance that the governor set up with Scott Brister and all those folks. We're coming out with a thing that basically said no new taxes and, and, and cutting off some of the ways that the state might raise the kind of money that would rebalance the system and really give people property tax relief. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at the same time, we saw sort of a parting gift from outgoing Speaker Joe Strauss, who's uh, offered some some budget ideas of his own. I think uh, we're seeing on Facebook questions about his suggestion that five billion is available for public education funding. Uh, what was what? Tell us a little bit about that parting gift. You know, um, you know, it's like a deathbed speech. You know, Paul Ryan is giving a <laughs> giving a speech in in Congress about you know. Uh, while I was here, I tried to do so-and-so. I mean, it's interesting, and it's a historical footnote, but the guy's leaving, and he's not going to have any bearing on anything. Uh, it is interesting that he's saying there's $5 billion here. The, what he's not saying necessarily is that the $5 billion is being used for other stuff. You know, the money that the state government has, whatever you think of the current allocation of that money, this is highways, this is schools, this came from here and should be used for this, and all of those kinds of things. He's saying, you know, if you sort that out, there's $5 billion that should be spent on education and could be, but you have to find $5 billion to spend on the other stuff. Um, it, you know, if this was an easy thing to solve, if this was just a fight over it costs this much, spend that, it would be much easier than, you know, the interplay between if I spend it on this, I can't spend it on that. There's, you know, it's hard. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think this is an issue where Strauss wants to remain very involved uh, once he steps down as, as speaker, steps down from the legislature. Um, and, you know, to the extent that he can be influential, um, I think there are, you know, House members uh, who are in the trenches on this issue in previous sessions uh, who, Joe who, you know, who uh, Joe Strauss is still an influential figure to and will remain, um, you know, even when he's outside the legislature. So it'll be interesting to see how he uses his voice on this issue when he's no longer in the legislature. And I think that he's trying to lay down a marker with this, this final you know, interview he gave about $5 billion. What are the chances that this really gets worked out in some fashion, this legislative session? I mean, it's not like there's not like a court ruling or an electoral mandate that there is breathing down their neck. It seems like, <laughs> that's a great question. Mm -hmm. um, I'll take a whack at it. Um, <laughs> it. It's been interesting to see, you know, that so far there have been so few other distractions heading into this session, I think it's been at least notable in that there's been a singular focus and willingness to take on this issue. Um, and so far, they've kind of stayed on uh, on track. Um, you know, this could all go off the rails any day, basically. But it, I just, you know, continue to think about how before last session, we were having a discussion about all these inflammatory uh, issues, controversial issues like the uh, sanctuary cities ban, uh, bathroom bill, uh, you know, there were a few other ones there that were really kind of animating the pre-session discussion mm -hmm. and debate. Um, and it seems like so far, uh, you know, state leaders, uh, Greg Abbott, the presumptive speaker, Dennis Bonin, and, and Dan Patrick, to some of an extent, have done a good job of not letting any other inter any, any other issues interfere with this focus on school finance and property taxes. I haven't even heard the world words school choice lately, which really got right. wrapped up in this whole thing last session. Do you think, given the election we just had, that they're going to try to sort of keep that as a separate issue? Uh, yeah, I think the lieutenant governor's office in particular views the last election as, you know, I know this is a pretty straightforward way. I mean, you know, that they view the last election as the education lobby and the teacher unions and those interests that have fought us on issues like vouchers and charter schools uh, put up a sustained attack on the lieutenant governor and lost. And that the consequence of that is, you know, that the lieutenant governor should stay on track and with the plans that 
he he pursued in the last session and the session before that, which was, you know, some kind of voucher program, whether it's educational savings accounts or vouchers or whatever you want to call it, and some expanded version of charter school, some way to get kids an opportunity or parents an opportunity to choose something other than the public school that they're assigned to. All right. Well, uh, one last topic before we go today. Patrick, fill us in on the latest between the two potential 2020 presidential contenders from Texas, uh, Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke. Castro has not exactly been playing coy. His brother basically outed him, announced for him officially. Did they work that out? These guys are twins. They know how this works. You know, I'm not going to say it. You say it. uh, (laughs) Twin workaround at FTC. Totally. (laughs) Uh, So give us the latest. Yeah, so you have Julian Castro, who had, uh, formed a presidential exploratory committee, I think it was last week or the week before that. Um, but he's been preparing this for close to a year, or, over, or close to two years, or over two years now, ever since he stepped down as, as HUD secretary. Um, and he's said in, in recent weeks that he's very, quote, very likely to run. Um, and then, you know, if there was you know any remaining mystery, he and his brother, Joaquin Castro, twin brother, uh, went on a late show, I believe it was Stephen Colbert's show, uh, last week. And Colbert was kind of needling uh, Julian Castro about, you know, why all the buildup? Why don't you just announce right now you're going to run for president? And Joaquin interrupted and said, okay, I'll just, I'll just say it for him. He's going to run for president. That's such a and so, brother, you know, <laughs> brother move. Yeah. Yeah, neener, neener, so, neener, right? Um, yeah. You know, Julian has set uh, an announcement uh, that he's, you know, expected to run for president uh, for January 12th in San Antonio. Uh, so the suspense isn't really, you know, is he going to run for president? I'm, I'm interested to see kind of what his message is on January 12th. What is, what is the suspense? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, you know, he's going to, that's going to be his, you know, highest profile opportunity yet uh, to lay out his case for why, you know, he's, he's the best, the best bet in this, in this primary. At the same time on a parallel, somewhat parallel track, you have Beto O'Rourke. Um, who is not rushing at all, at least publicly, it appears, to make some kind of 2020 decision. He had um, his final monthly town hall in his congressional capacity in El Paso last week and, of course, got a lot of questions about 2020. What are you thinking? And he said something to the effect of, you know, we're, we're now five weeks from the Senate election and I'm no closer to deciding what I'm going to be yeah. doing. He sort of said, I thought I'd, I thought I'd have more yeah, of an idea of by course. this point. It seems, yeah. That seems like quite very, a candid... Yeah, very a, poetic as usual. Uh, yes, right. <laughs> but, uh, I thought I'd know where I was, but I'm not. Um, so, but I mean, it's clear that he doesn't feel, I mean, I'm sure he's getting a lot of encouragement, a lot of uh, pressure to, to make a decision here, but he's not projecting the image of someone who is in a rush to make a decision about this. Or on um, on Senate. I mean, I thought right. he originally said there was no chance he was, you know, would Yeah, there were some signals Cornyn. from his camp that he wasn't, in, you know, interested in, in running against Cornyn. And I still think that's kind of the case mm-hmm. based on what I'm hearing. But it, when our reporter, uh, Julian Aguilar, asked about it, uh, the prospect of running right. Senate, he said, I'm not ruling anything out. Mm-hmm. And so he's clearly keeping his options open. Um, you know, but, you know, obviously that's in contrast to Castro, who is, you know, full steam ahead, going to make this announcement January 12th. You know, there's two ways to do this. If you come out, you can come out with a, you know, just a different strategy. One strategy is come out early and try to win the finance primary, try to lock down big donors early in a race that's going to involve, I think Politico or somebody had a list of 36 or more candidates, possibly on the Democratic side. So jump out early and lock down a bunch of money, or if you're confident that you can come in late and attract a bunch of money, which is largely what O'Rourke did in his Senate race, mm-hmm. um, then you have some time to breathe here. Yeah. Is anyone going to get locked down with Julian Castro when they have Beto O'Rourke waiting in the wings with that kind of, you know, coming off the heels of this race, that kind of star power? In Texas specifically? Yeah. I think a lot of people, folks in Texas, are waiting to see what mm-hmm. O'Rourke does. Yeah. Um, you, I mean, you may have a case where donors give, you know, max out to both. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. You know, we had that certainly on the Republican presidential primary in Texas in 2016 when we had uh, Ted Cruz running, right. Rick Perry running, Jeb Bush obviously with Texas ties running. You had some big donors in Texas. Not that hard to do. Kind of playing playing yeah. the field well, until things there was a little more clarity. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's easy as homers to sort of see this as a two person race, but it's you know there's a lot of candidates. There are a lot of there's a lot of competition for interest, yeah. and I'm not sure either one of them mm -hmm. finishes in the top ten. You know. Yeah, something I'll note too about O'Rourke is as he's kind of you know been in the spotlight, and the spotlight has intensified on him as a potential 2020 candidate. You know, there's been more and more kind of chatter from some mainly it's been confined to some corners on social media and whatnot, uh, kind of about vulnerabilities he may have on his left. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think it, you know, there's been some, some questions about uh, oil and gas executive money he took during his Senate campaign, whether that violated a pledge that he had. And I think it just goes to show, and again, it's been, it's been somewhat isolated. It hasn't been a widespread problem for, for him so far. But if he runs for president, uh, you know, the, the, the scrutiny, the level of scrutiny that he's going to face um, in a national democratic primary is going to be of a much different flavor, I think, um, than if you're just running against Ted Cruz right. in Texas. Right. Right. Um, when you run against Ted Cruz, you know, I think people on your left are willing to give you a little more leeway on some of these issues. But when you're running in a field that could include Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren at the national level, um, it's just a different level of scrutiny. It'll be interesting to see how that extends as, as he gets closer to the decision. Right. Big Water, Whataburger investigation. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, Ross, you had a column this week calling it the potential I-10 primary, which I loved. Have these two guys said anything about each other lately? Castro and O'Rourke? Have they said anything about? Uh, I, no, I think it's all. I think it's been all sweetness and light. Yeah, so I think far. Castro yeah. was asked about it as part of his kind of exploratory committee launch, and just had some nice words to say about her work Senate campaign. And both of them have said, you know, they're not going to let uh, either person dictate, you know, kind of their timeline or something like mm -hmm. that. That they're going to work on their own decision. There hadn't really been any exactly towel snapping or anything. You know, it's right. not. You know, yeah. he doesn't speak Spanish. He don't. You know, all of that kind of right. stuff. We haven't. We're not there yet. Uh, and one last question from <laughs> social media. This is like the question everyone's asking. Is Beto Aren't they dreamy? <laughs> is Beto experienced enough to be president? What do you think, Ross? No. Oh, Emma, jump in. Well, I was just going to say, as Ross wrote in a column, you yes. know, to kind of shift the question. <laughs> Ross. How experienced do you need to be to be president? Well, right. I mean, if experience... And, and experienced at what? Well, if experience is the, is the measure, then no. Um, you know, I mean, this sort of came to light. I was thinking about um, we had just come out of the George H.W. Bush funeral and, you know, you're reminded again or I was reminded again of, you know, what a deep uh, public service um, history he had before he became president. Mm -hmm. And um, it was sort of a rare case. But then you look at the last few presidents, Donald Trump and Barack Obama and George W. Bush don't have that kind of experience and don't have that necessarily that kind of education. The first, you know, big serious obstacle in the road for a Castro or a an O'Rourke is let's take out this globe tell me about the world you know you remember you may remember George W Bush stumbling on this uh, there's a lot to learn here and there are a lot of other candidates here who are really well versed in world affairs and you know that's largely what a president does so all right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to uh, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Texas Gulf Coast Community Colleges, the Texas Rural Funders Collaborative, and the Hotel San Jose, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Patrick, Emma, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Wow.